Hello, I'm Maya Nowens, and welcome back to part two of our special episode on the U.S. presidential election. In part one, we spoke to Ewan Graham and John Rain on how a Biden presidency could impact U.S. foreign policy in the Asia-Pacific and Middle East. In this episode, we'll be discussing how U.S. relations with Russia and Latin America could change under a new administration and the policy challenges that Biden will face. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Ever since evidence emerged of Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. election, which saw Donald Trump take the White House, U.S.-Russian relations have worsened, especially among the Democratic Party. IISS Senior Fellow for Russia and Eurasia, Nigel Gold Davis, addresses the risks and opportunities that may present themselves in Russia and its neighbors over the coming years. Welcome on to the show, Nigel. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Delighted to be here, Mayor. So what has been the reaction from leaders in Eurasia to Biden's election victory? I note particularly that Putin hasn't responded. Yes, uh, most of the the leaders in the region have uh, maintained form and protocol and and, uh, duly phoned in their congratulations. Uh, There uh, are some notable absences. Uh, The most significant is Putin. And uh, contrast this with the situation in 2016 when Trump was first elected. It was the following day that Putin uh, issued his congratulation and and made it known that he had done so. And his silence uh, on this occasion is very significant. Uh, Contrast that with uh, Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine, who uh, was quick to to congratulate uh, the president-elect on his victory. And I think there are reasons why Ukraine, among others in the region, will be happy and Russia unhappy with the election result. And why is that? This election has been uniquely significant for the U.S.-Russia relationship. Uh, What's at stake here is not only questions of foreign policy, how the two countries will relate to one another over the next four years. Uh, This is also part of an underlying systemic rivalry. Putin has sought to demonstrate the advantages of an authoritarian anti-democratic system of government. And we know in 2016 and also in 2020, he tried to, uh, in various ways, sow dissent and confusion and chaos into the American political process at the time of the elections. Uh, And so America has faced an unprecedented challenge. Uh, For the first time, What's at stake has been not only the course of American politics, but the resilience of its regime. Uh, The the, uh, question has been posed about the future of democracy itself in America. And this is extraordinary territory. And in fact, as we speak now, it's not yet clear that Donald Trump will accept the outcome of the election. He is behaving in a way that uh, democratic leaders do not normally do. We've yet to see how far that goes uh, and whether he will try to resist the orderly uh, transition uh, of power in a democracy. But to come back to the fundamental point, uh, if international relations are defined by uh, a struggle between systems of government and not just relations between states, then we are reaching a critical moment here. How will a Biden administration impact Russia relations or uh, relations in Eurasia? 
Well, as things stand now, U.S.-Russia relations are extremely poor at their lowest point since the early 1980s between Mikhail, before Mikhail Gorbachev uh, came to power. Uh, there's every reason to think that a Biden presidency will make things even more difficult for Russia. Uh, firstly, some of Biden's underlying priorities intrinsically challenge Russia's uh, objectives. Uh, Biden will seek to repair uh, America's alliances that have frayed under Trump, and especially the Atlantic alliance, of course. Secondly, Biden will restore the centrality of democratic solidarity to American foreign policy. Trump has said little or nothing about democracy and human rights in foreign policy. And uh, Biden has made it uh, very clear that uh, he wants to uh, revive that traditional but recently neglected theme in American uh, policy. And thirdly, Biden will make a priority, too, of the global struggle against corruption. Uh, and uh, that uh, puts uh, on warning uh, corrupt regimes like Russia and others, too, in the region, uh, that they will uh, no longer be able to use uh, Western uh, outlets, uh, the rule of law, and Western systems to send and keep safely uh, the illicit gains that have been made within their countries, uh, and which they sometimes use to destabilize other countries as well. So that's the first thing. R Russia, as it were, ticks all the wrong boxes as far as Biden's global priorities are concerned. Uh, the second uh, issue, more Russia-specific, is that uh, um, Biden is uh, not Trump uh, in respect of his relationship with Putin. Uh, the Putin-Trump relationship remains mysterious. There is uh, no other American president who has ever treated a major adversary with such apparent deference and willingness to please uh, as uh, Trump has uh, uh, of Putin. Uh, and Biden, uh, by contrast, uh, has made uh, some very stern remarks about Putin and has personally been uh, affected by Russia's support for malign narratives about uh, Biden's uh, own son, Hunter Biden, and his, uh, his uh, involvement in Ukraine. So I think this will be more difficult for Russia, but also for other countries that violate human rights uh, and are corrupt as well. And what challenges do you think the Biden administration itself will have to overcome over the next four years with regards to its Russia or Eurasia policies? I think the first thing to say is that uh, a Biden-Russia policy will be very different from a Trump-Russia policy, but uh, it will have bipartisan support. Uh, so this will be an unusual case of a major policy change that will not be especially domestically controversial. One of the very few issues on which uh, the Republicans in Congress have consistently parted company from their president has been uh, Russia policy. So there'll be widespread support uh, for uh, a more assertive uh, White House uh, tone. Uh, this has been an exceptionally busy and turbulent few months for uh, the region. Uh, not only have we seen the uh, attempted poisoning of uh, the opposition leader, Alexei uh, Navalny, which has um, created a, a new uh, a crisis in the relationship with the West. We've also seen elections in Belarus 
uh, Kyrgyzstan and Georgia, all to differing degrees uh, create uh, turbulence uh, and uh, instability, uh, especially in Kyrgyzstan, where we saw a complete change of government, and Belarus, where now, um, three months on, we still have uh, the streets of Minsk and beyond uh, being filled with uh, protesters who, uh, who don't uh, want to uh, uh, put up with Alexander Lukashenko any longer. But most severely uh, and urgently of all, we have a, a war going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the, uh, the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, and that, that looks as if it will, uh, uh, well, is escalating already. It is producing human rights uh, tragedies uh, as we speak and could lead to larger uh, uh, regional uh, implications there. And it will embolden Turkey as well, which has supported Azerbaijan. So there's a lot of uh, instability of various degrees uh, in the region. Um, but also, I think, managing Russia as Russia approaches its own presidential election in 2024 will be critical as well. I think there's every reason to think that uh, Russian foreign policy will become more adversarial, Russian domestic policy more authoritarian and repressive. So for all of those reasons, uh, it's hard to be optimistic about the, uh, the direction of travel of the US-Russia relationship. One final point, uh, and especially urgent, is that uh, within a few days of uh, Biden taking office on January 20th, uh, the New START treaty is due to expire. This is the one remaining nuclear arms uh, treaty uh, still binding those two powers. Uh, and it's in their, both of their interests, it seems to me, to seek at least some form of extension in, in the short term. But that will, I think, be at the top of the intro. It reminds us that for all of the difficulties and differences, there are still some common interests between uh, those two countries. So it'll expire just after he takes office, right? So there won't be, so it'll still largely be a Trump process, a, a Trump run process until January. Or will there be a handover of the negotiations for New Start? Biden will take office on January the 20th. Uh, New Start is due to expire on February the 4th. So if Trump doesn't successfully negotiate at least a, a one-year extension, as the Russians have been asking for, uh, then uh, Biden has a matter of a, a few days to, uh, to, to sort that out. So uh, that will be extremely urgent. Uh, and uh, if that falls away, there's no restraint whatsoever on the numbers of strategic nuclear weapons that the two countries have. If the Biden administration poses greater challenges to Russia uh, over the next four years. Do you think that that will um, result in closer relations between China and Russia? We've already heard Vladimir Putin, I believe, a couple of weeks ago say that in principle, Russia isn't opposed to forming an alliance with China, um, though that doesn't necessarily mean that that will happen. How do you view that relationship changing under a uh, Biden administration? I think that uh, Russia will seek uh, support and a closer relationship from China where it can. We've seen that 
uh, relationship improved very significantly over the past four or five years. Uh, but ultimately, I think that uh, that argument is oversold uh, and that there is less to that relationship than meets the eye. Russia knows that China can be very tough and pragmatic in its dealings with Russia. Uh, and there are limits to uh, the extent to which uh, common interests push those two together. Uh, it would be especially wrong to think of this as some triangular relationship and that we must, uh, or the West generally must pull Russia away from a closer relationship with China uh, uh, by softening its policy. Uh, we've occasionally heard that sort of argument, including from uh, President Macron, and uh, it really, in my view, does not stand up to uh, scrutiny. Uh, so the relationship might improve further. They have clearly have some common interests, but it's ultimately not in the gift of the West to decide what that relationship is. It should deal with each country uh, on its own merits. I mean, that doesn't sound very positive for a Trump administration or at least a, a White House that I think is now uh, solely focused on not just uh, determining the election results, whether they were lawful or not, battling them out in court, but also, of course, thinking about um, more uh, concerns closer to home uh, with regards to presidential pardons and the like. Um, how much focus will there be on continuing the negotiations on you start uh, for the next coming months? It's hard to be optimistic. I think that all uh, the political energies now uh, in the American political system will be consumed by domestic politics, ensuring that there is a stable and orderly transition. And ultimately, for all of the difficulties, uh, let's hope that there is a positive story to tell about democracy here. It's sometimes said that Trump is the man the founders feared. It is precisely to guard against a demagogue like him that this elaborate system of checks and balances was created. Uh, those checks and balances have faced their most severe test since the American Civil War. Uh, and if they uh, remain intact, then that is uh, a success story for democracy. It shows that an underperforming leader can be peacefully removed from office. That's something that does not happen in authoritarian states. So a last question then, perhaps, what opportunities will the Biden administration have uh, with regards to its policies in the region? It will uh, have opportunities to build better and more disciplined and coherent and consistent uh, relations with uh, at least some of the countries. Uh, Biden has said in particular that he will make a priority of Ukraine, which of course has been uh, a, a key controversial issue uh, in the Trump presidency, and indeed the, the, the old, old underlying cause of his impeachment. So there'll be consistency. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, a, a Biden presidency should not be uh, critical of uh, areas where Ukraine or other countries fall short, but there will be uh, more focus uh, and uh, a, a policy more consistent with underlying American values. The same is true of Belarus, where America has been 
pretty passive, uh, actually, uh, since the um, demonstrations began uh, after the August 9th election. So there are opportunities to renew America's purpose and consistency uh, in its policy across the region. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nigel. Great insights. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Matt. And finally, we speak with Irene Mia, Senior Fellow for Latin America. As Irene explains, Joe Biden is a familiar figure in Latin America following numerous visits in his previous role as Vice President under the Obama administration. However, the region is facing a range of political and economic challenges that have only become more acute as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Irene addresses the various policy choices towards the region that Biden will face in the next four years. Hi, Irene. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hey, Maya. It's fantastic to be in the podcast, especially after those very exciting elections. <laughs> so Latin America was a region that was quite neglected under the Trump presidency, and I understand that Biden already has some experience with the region. What was the reaction from Latin American leaders over the weekend? Well, it's an interesting question because, as you said, it was probably one of the most neglected uh, region by Trump. I, I think he just did one trip to the region, uh, to Buenos Aires, uh, in uh, for the for the G20 summit, and that's it. Um, I guess it's an interesting question because, in a way, you know, Trump had a very transactional and um, relationship with most of the region and really kind of led by domestic policy considerations. So the big focus, as you as you, as you you know, was migration or rather avoiding migrants to come to the U.S. Uh, and with very kind of um, hardline policies on, uh, on uh, war on drugs and migration and also on uh, Cuba and Venezuela. But at the same time, you know, I think he was... Um, relatively easy for Latin American leaders to deal with him because in a way, you know, as long as they, they uh, address the migration issue, then there was very little scrutiny on rule of law, very little scrutiny on environmental protection, very, very little scrutiny on uh, freedom of the press, for instance, which we have seen deteriorating in the last few years. So I guess it's, uh, it's, with Biden, of course, is going to be a much more sympathetic um, counterpart, but also a much more demanding counterpart. So I think issues that were, in a way, neglected as well, as I said, uh, with respect, if you, if you take Mexico, for instance, which was, uh, you know, uh, home of one of the most unlikely friendship between, uh, you know, Lopez Obrador, who is a, a left-wing populist, and, uh, and Trump, there was a, a, a very good relationship between the two. I guess, you know, obviously the migration issue and the, and the building the walls uh, wasn't very pleasant for Mexican or for Lopez Obrador. But at the same time, there was very little scrutiny on, uh, on uh, labor law or environmental uh, um, law, which is uh, a fundamental part of the U.S. MCA, which is the agreement which was signed uh, with Trump to replace NAFTA. And I think this is something that is going to become quite central with Biden. So, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, four years for uh, both leaders which were more uh, um, uh, kind of more far away from Trump, but also from leaders which were closer to Trump, including Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Lopez Obrador, and also leaders in Central America like Bukele, who were quite close to Trump, um, and uh, for which, I guess, um, the standards in terms of democratic uh, of, of, of democracy and uh, rule of law weren't as strong as they should have been. I mean, what I think was interesting in the U.S. Uh, elections uh, has been the 
realization perhaps that the Latino community in the United States is quite divided over their preferences for Trump or Biden. And we saw a heavily split uh, Latino community um, voting uh, in the polls. Do you think that that, ch that difference between um, different Latino communities will be also reflected in Latin America amongst leaders? Are there leaders in Latin America that still prefer Trump? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, as I said, for some leaders, it was probably an easier person to deal with, right? Apart from the rhetoric and the fact that he was being very, you know, very dismissing and very disparaging with respect to, to the region. Uh, I guess it was, and I think I read an article somewhere about uh, uh, the relationship with Lopez Obrador saying that, okay, once the, 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 the Lopez Obrador ensured that, you know, migrants weren't, uh, weren't going through the wall, then he could do whatever he wanted in Mexico in a way. So I guess there is there is a bit of that um I guess, in general, the main issue, even post-Trump, um, uh, is going to be migration, especially after, you know, the, the pandemic, which had devastating impact uh, in the region. So I think it's fair to, to assume that there will be a, 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 new, a new flow of migrants coming from the region, especially since Biden has won, right? So uh, the, 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 the people in Latin America know that this, this is something which is going to change. The, 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 the approach is going to be much more sympathetic, much more similar to the past uh, and, you know, respectful of human rights. Uh, but in terms of split of the Latino community in, uh, in, in the U.S., um, you know, I think it's, it's a bit of a... It's a bit biased in a way because obviously you have the, the, the Cuban-American and Venezuelan, which have very strong uh, uh, take against socialism and, uh, you know, uh, Cuba or, or Venezuela or the, or the, the current uh, regime, or should I say one of the regime uh, in Venezuela at the moment since, you know, we have had two, two parallel governments for the last uh, 18 months or more. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's not exactly the same split um, in Latin America, but definitely you'll, you'll see a bit of, uh, of that in terms of how to deal with, uh, with, with Biden. I think for some leaders, it's going to be um, a return to the, to, the, to the past, but in a way, a more uh, demanding past. Also because Biden is going to be a much more informed interlocutor for the region. As you, as you mentioned, you know, he's, he has been uh, in charge of Latin America in the second Obama administration. He knows the region very well. He was actually put in charge of the crisis of child migrant in 2013. Uh, so he knows very well all the issues in the region. So what are the challenges that Biden's administration will have to overcome in perhaps rebuilding the relationships with uh, Latin American countries? Well, I think there are going to be many challenges. I think as with probably most of the world uh, for Biden is, is going to be really a post-war administration to a certain extent, right? So there are going to be so many, many fires to put down, so many priorities. Latin America is probably not going to be its first priority, of course. It, I do think Latin America is going to go is going to go up in uh, in uh, in importance uh, uh, in in Biden uh, tenure. I don't obviously there is there is also much more uh, um, uh, important interest on the on Biden part for Latin America, but also I think there are there are um, 
trends which make Latin America more important. As I said, the fact that the, 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 the devastating impact of COVID in the region is likely to create more political instability and therefore more uh, um, un- uncontrolled migration flows to, 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 to the US. I think on a more positive note, uh, Latin America can, and especially Central America, Mexico and the Pacific Alliance, can have an important role in building um, supply chain which are kind of closer to home, which is something that we have seen you know, after COVID becoming very important. Uh, there is also an issue of climate security uh, for Latin America, which you know, is very dear to, to Biden's heart. Uh, you know, Amazon, the Amazon, of course, are, um, are the lung of the planet. But also more in general, if you look at the development model in, uh, in the region, they're very much based still around um, fossil fuel energy, which is obviously an issue for, for Biden. Um, an example is uh, Lopez Obrador, entire economic vision being based actually on uh, boosting oil and coal. So it's, it's a very different uh, point of view from, uh, from, from Biden. Um, so I guess the, the, there are going to be a number of challenges for him. I guess the, the challenge number one for me is really how to deal with the uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, impact of the pandemic. Um, the region is forecast or estimated to contract this year by 8.1, which is actually much more than most of the region. I guess the latest IMF estimates for developing countries uh, were for 3.3. So there is going to be a much, a much deeper uh, contraction in, uh, in Latin America. And I guess really the role for the US there, it's not only helping the recovery in the kind of short-term recovery, but also helping the region really think, you know, what should be the model going forward, the development model going forward, what should be um, a, a, a sustainable model which actually ensures that all those weaknesses we have seen uh, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the pandemic, which have to do really with the fact that uh, Latin America is a very uh, unequal region, so you see, uh, you have seen basically the pandemic has hit really hard because of the large informal market, because of um, very, very unequal access to healthcare, but also to social security net. So I think there is really a need to look at this and say, okay, what are the, what is the inclusive model which could be uh, adopted going forward? And I guess there is a lot of conversation in the region. There are lots of organizations. Um, spearheaded by the by ECLAC, which is the European Commission of the UN for Latin America, about what is this kind of new development model? Uh, how can you be um, really, uh, how can you grow in a way which is sustainable and is based on, uh, on, uh, on um, inclusivity and uh, equality? So I guess there, the, the, the US has a role to play, but also has a role to play in terms of uh, letting the organization, like, for instance, the Inter-American Development Bank, support in a very, um, in a very unbiased way the, 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 the region. And I say that because there's been a very controversial uh, uh, election just before um, uh, Trump, uh, just before the election, there's been the, the, president, the president of the IDB uh, election was coming up. And uh, traditionally, uh, this position would always go to a Latin American. Uh, but Trump made the case for um, Mauricio Claver Caron, which, which was actually responsible for Latin America, very hardcore and hardline towards uh, Cuba and Venezuela to be elected. So there, there's been actually this, this tendency on the Trump administration to also use this multilateral organization in the region as a, as a tool of statecraft, right? So I think it's very important. The same you could say with the Organization of American States. Uh, if you remember last year, um, the, 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 the report by this organization was instrumental in uh, 
um, basically creating um, controversy in Bolivia after the election of uh, Morales. So basically, there is this tendency, there is some uh, allegation in terms of the role of the organization as a, as a, as a tool of U.S. power. So I think there is, there is really the need for, Latin, for the U.S. to be much more supportive on this process, but also much more uh, um, really respectful in the way in which the region will, uh, will, uh, will continue this process. Uh, I guess the, the other issue would be really um, using, helping the, 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 the recovery and the, and the new model uh, through also using, uh, you know, the supply chain. So we have heard, we have seen that essential supply chain are very important uh, to be closer to home. So in a way, it's a win-win. You know, obviously there is uh, Mexico is there. Mexico is connected to um, to the Pacific Alliance, Colombia, Peru, and so on and so forth. So you know, there is there is actually opportunity to help the region and help the U.S. at the same time by by really developing those kind of trade uh, links and this kind of uh, supply chain across the region. Um, I guess the other thing which is very important is really uh, something we, which we haven't seen. During uh, during Trump administration, so much which is really upholding the democratic value in the region as well, because as I see, as I as I as I said, um, Trump has been uh, hasn't really put any scrutiny on uh, on some kind of authoritarian uh, uh, drift we have seen in the region, and more and more during the COVID uh, administration. Uh, you know, if you look at the situation of the freedom of the press um, in, uh, in, uh, in in Salvador. Uh, in uh, in Mexico itself, in Brazil, there has really been a, a, a in a way a disengagement from the U.S. and really defending the value for which it should stand, which is the democratic value and leaders. And I think this is even more important because next year there is a, a, what we could really call as an, as an election super cycle in Latin America. You are going to have election in countries as as key for migration uh, and uh, stability as El Salvador, um, Honduras, uh, you are going to, uh, you, sorry, Nicaragua, Nicar Nicaragua Honduras, uh, Ecuador, you're going to have uh, election in Peru, you're going to have election in Chile, you're going to have midterm election in Mexico, which are going to be really important because it's really about also the process of, uh, there's going to be a very important referendum that Lopez Obrador has managed to approve, um, which is going to be also done at the same time of the midterm election, which is about uh, whether we could uh, um, persecute a former president. So I think it's very important here also to uphold democracy. Um, there, there is the issue of um, Venezuela, which hasn't gone away. Um, obviously, we are in the situation whereby Venezuela is a main uh, threat to regional stability, um, not only in terms of uh, flow of migrants, which are actually going to, uh, more, not, not really towards the US, but more towards uh, uh, South America, uh, Colombia, Peru. Argentina, uh, which has been a, a big issue, like six million people almost have, have have moved from Venezuela outside. But also, you know, the involvement of other of other um, power in Venezuela, Iran, Russia, um, and I guess really there is uh, what what Trump has been uh, has been uh, has been doing, which is a really hard line uh, um, policy towards Maduro and uh, you know supporting Guaido, hasn't really worked. So I think there is really a need to think about what would be the alternative to that. And I guess, um, I, I mean, it's very, it's very, it's very, it's going to be very tricky, I guess, for Biden because also Biden has uh, supported uh, Guaido. Um, but I guess there is an understanding of the fact that maybe policies which are more based on diplomacy and uh, really uh, pushing for um, fair election would be would be probably the best. 
um, and I guess Cuba, which is related to the to the Venezuela, because obviously it's uh, it's uh, Cuba is supporting Venezuela, but again. Uh, with intelligence, which is something which Venezuela really needs, doctor and, and many other ways. So I guess it's really a question of saying, okay, what do we do for for, for Cuba? So is it a question of uh, really? Uh, and again, I guess the the Cuban issue and the and the hardline policies toward Cuba really justified, as we were saying, for uh, um, domestic policy consideration about um, the the Florida, which actually were were very 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 correct. Uh, <laughs> Uh, consideration on on Trump uh, part, but then again, there isn't really any reason uh, to, to 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 really be uh, so hardline um, towards Cuba. And I think being hardline towards Cuba is, is also an impact on not solving the question of Venezuela. So I think there there as well there will be some kind of changes. I would I would um, I would um, expect. And I guess the last challenge is really how to deal with China in the region, which is in the region but everywhere in the world. But also in the region, what we have seen is really um, China making very important um, um, inroads in the region. I, I guess the disengagement of the U.S. has really left the door open. So China is very much present in the region. You have 19 countries in Latin America which are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you have uh, China having having actually lent something like 140 billion since 2005 to the region, which is actually more than what the IDB, the World Bank, and the CAF had, have lent to the to the to the to the region at the same time. Uh, also, uh, China is very much involved in the 5G deployment in the region. So I guess there is really the the, the need for Biden in Latin America also to find a bit of um, uh, modus vivendi with China. Like really, what, how do we how do we deal with China? Realistically, it's it, it is going to be it is now a bipolar world in Latin America, um, and uh, and I guess the US will have to find a way to really. Um, live with China in uh, in Latin America and I guess internationally. So I guess those are all the issues. Migration obviously is going to be a big um, byproduct of all those instability in the region. Um, I guess again, um, the big issue there is that um, Biden has already has already has already committed to um, you know a aid package of I think four billion to really help. Uh, development and um, and also democracy in Central America, which obviously it's uh, it's one part of the equation which was really neglected by 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 Trump. Um, I guess there is a much bigger conversation and discussion, which is more about what do you do with drug policy, what do you do with um, with uh, uh, the way in which you look at drugs. So is it is it really is it really just the offer problem? Or it's really also demand and the fact that there are weapons going through the border. I don't know. I'm not sure wh- whether there will be a, a a fundamental question or a fundamental uh, um, uh, change in that sense. Um, also because I guess it will also depends how whether whether Trump whether whether the Republican are, are still in charge of Senate or whatever. I mean, I guess in, to certain extent it will depend on how much um, uh, margin uh, to to maneuver um, Biden has. But definitely, I think uh, at least the fact of recognizing that uh, drugs and violence associated to drugs are, are actually have uh, much deeper causes. Uh, it's it's already a, a you know a, 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 an improvement so i guess you know if we again there is a there is a really a 
um, an effort from the U.S. to uh, help development in the region and also to uphold the democratic leaders, I think that would be a, a much uh, a big progress with respect to what we had in the past four or four years. A lot to watch for. And of course, also very much related to those important points you mentioned, that the Pacific angle of relationships with Latin America, um, the issue around supply chains, uh, competition with China in the region. Um, what I think I'll be looking for, of course, is also how the U.S., perhaps might change its position towards the comprehensive and progressive agreement for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So lots to look out for uh, over the next few year, uh, next four years. And I'm really looking forward to your further insights on the region, Irene. Thank you. Thanks, Maya. Thank you so much for listening to this two-part episode of Sound Strategic. We hope you enjoyed it. So please don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And for all the latest analysis of international conflict, security, and defense issues, remember to follow the IISS on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or to visit the IISS website. Thank you, and see you next time.